Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CGR's weekly podcast about journalism and media. I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review. This is the only podcast in your feed not ruined by the tyranny of me undies or Blue Apron. Enjoy it. First up on the podcast this week, we will talk through Sean Spicer and the ongoing saga from the White House briefing room. Then we will turn to an interesting piece from CGR.org, sort of hypothesizing the possible day in the life of a journalist in 2027. And then finally, I will have an interview with Todd Gitlin, who's an author, a Columbia University professor, and a frequent writer on media and Trump for BillMoyers.com. Joining me for my first segment, a duo that has done a fair amount of reporting on Sean Spicer and his role from the White House briefing room, we have Delacorte Fellows Pete Vernon. Pete, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. And also Carlette Spike. Carlette, welcome hey. back. Thanks for having me, Dave. So media Twitter was abuzz the other day, and there have been subsequent newspaper reports filed regarding Sean Spicer, the embattled, seemingly embattled White House press secretary. Many have argued that what Spicer said from the podium in the Brady press briefing room on Tuesday was perhaps the most outrageous, offensive thing that he said in a very tumultuous couple of months from behind the lectern. Pete, what happened in the, in the briefing room the other day? In defending Donald Trump's decision to strike Syria, Sean Spicer invoked Godwin's law and compared Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, to Adolf Hitler, uh, and compared Bashar al-Assad negatively to Hitler, which just stay away from Hitler comparisons to all PR professionals, all public speakers, um, to our press secretary. Right. I think it's a lesson learned that it's he will not be invoking Adolf Hitler anymore. That's never a good idea. But specifically, he, he said that Adolf Hitler didn't gas his own people. Right. Even Hitler didn't use gas on his own people. And then Cecilia Vega, uh, ABC News' Cecilia Vega, gave him a chance to clarify that. He stumbled through another response where he acknowledged that Hitler did bring millions and millions of Jews, many of whom were German citizens, to what he calls Holocaust centers. He then issued a second clarification in a statement to the White House press pool just after the briefing, which invoked the word however, after I was not trying to make a comparison to Hitler, however, which is also not a good idea. So a, a third clarification was necessary, which omitted that word and, and tried to explain what he was doing. And then finally, on Tuesday evening, he went on CNN and issued a full apology to Wolf Blitzer, which was followed Wednesday morning, uh, this morning as we're recording, by a full apology to the entire country, to Donald Trump at a conference at the museum uh, where he was being interviewed. And he said he felt like he let the president down. So Spicer obviously put his foot in his mouth multiple times with this particular statement, and he has come under fire for it. But others have criticized him for very different reasons, more structural ways that he carries out his job. Carlette, you've done a lot of reporting on how Spicer asks questions at his briefing, and you've compiled some of his greatest hits, for lack of a better term, on things that he's said or, or ways that he's misled the press. I mean, give us give us the full rundown, give us the full scope of Sean Spicer's short tenure. It hasn't been good. I mean, there's no other way to really put it. He stumbles over words a lot. He That's the um, least of his words. <laughs> you know, I watched um, Rachel Maddow yesterday. She kind of did a greatest hits of his mistakes, and he calls out the wrong places often. So there was one example where he was talking about or meant to be talking about Orlando and kept saying Atlanta. So it's just like he's supposed to... That was to with reference to the terrorist attacks, yes. the Pulse nightclub shooting? Yeah. 
So he's supposed to speak for the president and represent, you know, the White House and everything that's going on. But it just seems like it's sad because it ends up summing up to ignorance. But it's just that this person that they have in charge really doesn't know what he's talking about half the time. Um, You know, there's all the jokes all the time after Trump made the big gaffe with Frederick Douglass. Sean Spicer came in and did the same thing. It's it's horrible. And there's (laughs) there's no way to really even try to justify it or try to give him a pass. It's it's really bad at this point. Right. Sean Spicer is the highest profile communications professional in the world, yet he routinely comes across these gaffes and uh, he continues. I mean, the gaffes are least of his worries, right? More more important is how he you know vilifies the press on live TV streams, how he lies or misleads with regard to the answers that he gives the press versus the questions. It feels like we're at an odd point at which it's almost difficult to trust anything he says at this point. I mean, the, the, the Holocaust remark just brought that into clearer focus. And, and Pete, you mentioned this museum event earlier, and it seems like there's a little bit of an awkward dynamic where they had Sean Spicer speaking and giving an interview with Greta Van Susteren before and after pretty adversarial reporters who've clashed with him in the past came up on stage and basically outlined exactly why he's not doing the best job. Right. And I think you mentioned the biggest issue here, which is trust. You know, he can have an adversarial relationship with the press and that can be mocked on Saturday Night Live and he and Glenn Thrush can go back and forth as much as they want. But the real issue and the reason that we have a press secretary is to be the voice of the U.S. president to the reporters in that briefing room, but also to the country and the world. And when he is out there, the gaffes are one thing, the stumbling over words, you know, make him a figure of mockery. But the real issue is that when he is lying, for lack of a better word, uh, I mean, that is at times what is going on. And yeah, it's crowd sizes uh, in the first interaction he had with the press, but it's also on bigger issues where people are asking about Michael Flynn and whether or not he's going to be replaced. And Spicer says, no, he has the full confidence of the president. That evening, he is fired. It's stuff about Syria when he's asked, what does this mean when Trump says one thing and H.R. McMaster is giving signals that something else is going on and Nikki Haley is giving signals that a third thing is going on. And Spicer just doesn't have the confidence of that room, it seems like, um, to really be a voice of the president and the administration. That might not entirely be his fault, given the chaotic nature of the White House, but it has certainly given the impression that he is not right now doing his job the way that we, the whole country really, and especially journalists, need a press secretary to do their job. I think you bring up a good point with regard to other countries in the world watching Sean Spicer. I think the White House press secretary and by extension the White House press corps are to some extent an instrument of American power. If the president and the White House can put out a message saying clearly to the world that this is their agenda, these are American values that we are following, this is our world strategy for trying to either police the world or try to maintain some sort of global order, they've really fallen flat in that respect. And, and this filters down into you know, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson not traveling with a press corps on his international trips. I feel as if whether it's through Sean Spicer misleading the press or fumbling over his words, I feel like it's having a bigger impact outside of, of media. I mean, there's no way to empirically test that. But if you do read foreign press, like The Guardian, for example, I mean, they sort of shade all of their reports with a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of questions surrounding what it exactly is this White House will do. And of course, Trump will say, I don't want to telegraph my messaging. Spicer will say that in the White House briefing room. 
But at some point, I mean, foreign leaders make decisions based off of what is said in the press briefing room in the White House. And if they can't trust it, then it seems almost natural that the world is going to be a little bit more of a complex, hard to understand, and potentially unstable place. I totally agree with that. And I just think it's funny because we're talking about his role and the things he's expected to do, but he actually has gone into briefings and made statements like, I can't talk for the president or I don't know what he's thinking. And it's almost like it's that's what job. you're supposed to be doing. Right. Or that's that's what you're supposed to be giving the message to the world. And if the world can't get the message, what do we do next? How do we know what's happening? And it's funny because a lot of people are saying we don't give Trump and his administration enough credit for access, and they will talk to reporters and things like that. But time and time again, the interviews aren't clear. There's no message at the end of it. So we're not really getting anything. Yeah. And that touches on a, a bigger issue about the administration, which is that Spicer is the one that we're seeing every day, but there's not a consistent message across the board on really anything. Um, there was a report either at the end of last week or over the weekend about the new communications director gathering senior staff and saying, what is our message? We don't have a an ideology. Um, so let's go. And he gave markers and whiteboard paper and everything and had them brainstorm ideas about how they would work on messaging. And a few people that leaked the, the details of that meeting said, no, we have a message. It's America first. Well, the president had just launched to the, the consternation of some in his base an attack on Syria. And that had come after years of criticizing any sort of foreign intervention and saying that Barack Obama would be wrong and it would be stupid to launch attacks on Syria. So there's a lot of mixed messaging going on right now. And Spicer is just the, the filter. Right. It's a, it's a difficult thing, too, because I think the Trump administration, they, they said the media is biased against them. And there is such a good critique to be made. The media is, in some cases, cartoonishly oppositional to the Trump administration. There's truth to that. There is no disputing that. But when the vehicle for that critique is a White House that consistently misleads or lies, is just sort of caught unawares with these very simple questions that it's expected to answer, it's really hard to actually take any of that seriously. I mean, there, there was a, a moment at the museum event that you mentioned, Pete, where Kellyanne Conway, who's an advisor to Trump, was on stage with Michael Wolff, who's a writer and frequent critic of the mainstream media. And they were basically arguing over whether Maggie Haberman, the New York Times reporter, is an honest reporter. Michael Wolff, citing something that he talked to Donald Trump about, said that Donald Trump doesn't like Maggie Haberman, whereas Kellyanne Conway, his special advisor who was there on stage, said, no, that's impossible because Maggie Haberman is one of the most honest reporters we know. Right. And it was it was a weird, surreal moment to see a journalist kind of criticizing another journalist and then Conway going on to defend Maggie Haberman for being hardworking and honest. We're just in a very strange place right now. So my question to end on is if and when Sean Spicer goes out of the job, will anybody take over that position behind the lectern in the Brady Briefing Room? It seems like the most thankless job. Carlette, are you up for it? Yeah. No, <laughs> not the job. The question, yes. I don't think anybody's going to want to do it. It just It's so brutal. There's such a power struggle. There was an interesting article by Slate yesterday that kind of talked about the fact that in previous administrations, the press had the power. You know, it was up to the press secretary to remain calm, but do their best. Obviously, you know, they're going to spin things or whatever. But it just seems like the biggest struggle right now is the fact that Sean Spicer wants to have the power and wants to control what's going on and what's happening. So I think that's what's causing all the issues. So even if he were to leave, I don't know if somebody else could kind of tame the crowd and right. kind of get it back. There's so much bad blood now. It's right. just, it just seems like a very difficult situation to wade into. And even based off who's in the administration, who would they choose? 
I don't know if that person's there right now, but I'm, I bet, you know, I imagine that somebody would love the opportunity to be on TV a few days a week. And Spicer said today he has access to the president and talks to him every day. Pretty cool. So I'm sure they will find someone who is interested in that proximity to power. Moving on, we'd like to dissect what a day in the life of a journalist might look like 10 years from now. CGR ran a piece adapted from an Associated Press report by Francesco Marconi in which he broke down the potential impact of artificial intelligence and automation on the day in the life of journalists in 2027. With us now to talk about that piece is the editor of that specific adaptation, Nasca Renner, a Tau editor for CGR. Nasca, how's it going? Thanks for having me. So 2027... It's 8 a.m. An environmental journalist is commuting to his newsroom in a driverless car. What happens? Yes. In 2027, we probably won't be driving anymore. The reporter is an environmental journalist and will have placed sensors all around. I believe the name of the town in the piece is Springfield, which I am imagining Springfield from The Simpsons. We'll have placed sensors all around Springfield that measure things like air quality and can alert the journalist to when there are significant changes. So the journalist is on his way to work and he gets a notification in his driverless car that there's been a shift in air pollution and air pollution has gone up somewhere in Springfield. So that's the beginning of the day. And over the course of the day, the journalist uses all kinds of AI influence tools to start putting together the story. After getting the notifications from the sensors, he's able to send out drones to look at the area, able to, of course, go out and report, figures out that most of the rise in air pollution is happening around a particular newly opened factory, so is able to go and call the PR people from the factory after that, is able to monitor social media for when people are complaining about you know, having more asthma attacks in that area and get in touch with those people. And by the end of the day, is able to put together a story based on reporting that is like heavily influenced by artificial intelligence from the drone to social media tracking, to using sensors, to scanning public records en masse to figure out what this factory is, who the owners are, that kind of thing. So the idea is to just give one example of a story that you might see today. I mean, a journalist could do any of this today, could look at air pollution measures, scan public records, and look through social media to see if people are experiencing symptoms. But the process of automation in this case has just made it all way faster. So this story, which might have taken a week or two now, in 10 years by the aid of automation will only take about a day. So you're saying a drone's going to take my job? No. I would like to say that, <laughs> for, for the sake of argument, I'd like to say that a drone is going to take your job. But I think this is the thing about AI-influenced journalism is that no jobs are being replaced. I mean, there's this kind of tension with all automation where we don't want to lose our jobs, but we want things to get easier. And we want the amount of work that we have to do to be reduced. But we don't want that taken away from us and we don't want machines making editorial decisions. So in this case, like the drone is basically just a tool like any other that a journalist can use to research a story. So what, I mean, obviously this seems a little pie in the sky for me for 10 years from now, 
But just to you know, make it bring it down to earth a little bit. Give me an example of like a story now that is aided heavily by automation, or artificial intelligence. Yeah. So we're sort of just at the beginning of this type of journalism. Three good examples are the weather, sports reporting, and reports on polls. So these are all things where basically you can have a template for the type of story, like it is X degrees right now in this place. Uh, The high today is Y, the low is Z, and it will be fill in, partly sunny, wintry mix, whatever. And that kind of thing you can reduce to just a template of the language and then you insert the specific numbers and a computer can do that. Same with sports reporting. You just you have the game, you have the number of points. Uh, it starts getting more complicated when you end up having to add in qualifiers. Like, for instance, in polling, if Donald Trump uh, over the summer had a 10-point lead over Hillary Clinton, is that a large lead or is that a small lead? Ideally, you want the article to have that kind of qualification to help you understand how significant what you're reading is. When I put this out on Twitter, I got a couple of responses basically saying, A, lazy journalists are going to abdicate too much responsibility to the robots, or B, these robots will eliminate the need for human journalists completely. And I guess I'm just not very worried about that. I just feel like the positive aspects that we've seen from automation or AI so far have been pretty cool and have allowed us to do some cool things we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And I, you know, I don't think that there's any evidence that they lead directly to job losses in the same way that they would for, say, working on a line at an auto factory. Yeah, it's funny the amount that AI just needs so much publicity help. Like, it's really a PR problem that they have right now because it's not going, I mean, you're not worried about it because you have your head screwed on straight. Like there, there's no way that robots are going to be journalists in the future. You guys obviously haven't watched enough movies because I know how the story ends, and it ends with the robots taking over. <laughs> not just journalism, but the world. Is that Terminator Four? Terminator Four, the newsroom. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I like. I agree with you to a large extent. I think it makes journalism better, right? Which is kind of the argument this piece is making. I do wonder if we're going to see maybe some more basic reporting duties that right now are filled by a person later being filled by automation. You mentioned like the factory line. There are aspects of journalism that are sure like more kind of factory line stuff. And yeah. that's not, they're not valuable. Like I like, want to be able to know what happened in the Phillies game last night. Um, or like earnings reports. Right. Writing yeah, up. Yeah. Some right. like economic journalism. I'm sure there's something for this in every field. Like you mentioned the weather, Nuska. But I, I just think we are going to see some level of replacement um, and in a perfectly functioning, healthy journalistic industry, those uh, reporters would be assigned to, you know, explaining things and more interesting in-depth feature stories. We just don't have a perfectly functioning industry right now and on the business side. So I can't help but think there's going to be some job loss. Like those people yeah. aren't, that are responding to you on Twitter aren't crazy, right? Well, I think the point is that it's not job loss because automation is directly taking jobs away from journalists. It's job loss because of other problems in the financial sustainability of journalism at the moment. Yeah, to piggyback off that, I was actually thinking about how much this would cost news organizations. And even sometimes something, you know, it ends up being cheaper in the end, but usually when they initially roll it out, it's like really expensive. And we already know the financial woes of the industry. So yeah, who's paying for that drone? 
I guess I was somewhat disappointed in the journalist of 2027 who was getting sort of essentially a blue apron delivery by <laughs> drone for lunch. I would have expected a much more interesting lunch choice than that. I mean, I can order sweet green right now for my phone and go pick it up. So that's not that much of a technological advancement. I don't know about you guys, but that's uh, sort of a letdown. Dave, speaking of, you've kind of uh, <laughs> you've kind of been going off on blue apron this week. <laughs> Well, I just need to say, and I mentioned this on Twitter, that your favorite podcast host who tells you all about how Blue Apron is convenient and worth the money is lying to you. It's not convenient. (laughs) Is this this coming from direct experience? It's coming from direct experience. It takes an hour to make. It comes with all this plastic packaging, and it costs $10 a meal to make yourself a dinner. Give me a break. You know where you can't get this kind of reporting? From a robot. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That good point. Robots cannot taste. So... In looking at this, the story that gets presented here is this really nice environmental journalism piece, and it's done in a day and a thing that would usually take a week or two weeks or whatever. What other kind of advances are we expecting to see? I mean, I guess the last thing that I want to say is that in this scenario, I think a lot of the benefits of automation that we've seen so far as journalists in our lives uh, have had to do with scale and have had to do with this idea that you can push journalism out on so many platforms and you can really innovate in the ways that you're telling the story, whether or not it's, you know, podcasts didn't exist like however many years ago. The nice sort of data presentations are still, you know, really knit together by experts at every news organization. And the sort of unsaid conclusion of this piece has to do with This is really a local journalist who is using automated journalism or, you know, artificial intelligence in order to tap into a very specific community. He's driving to work. The sensors are within 20 miles of where he is. The drone is flying just around the city. He's using social media to isolate specific people in his area. He's not using it to see what somebody like across the country thinks about what's going on. And that's really the ideal is that these tools are not just available to the coastal elite or the the legacy media brands, but they're also available to any journalist who is trying to use automated tools to keep a close eye and be a watchdog in his or her own community. Joining me on the podcast today to talk through the media's reaction to President Trump's decision to strike Syria is an author, a Columbia University professor, and a frequent writer about Trump in the media for BillMoyers.com, Todd Gitlin. Todd, thanks for being on the show. You bet. So you wrote a piece for CJR the other day, essentially lambasting the media and cable news in particular for a cheerleading response to the strikes in Syria last week. Why do you think TV news in particular is so bad at this, so hawkish toward military intervention, and so, for lack of a better word, excited when they they do see these images or actions taken? Well, excited is the right word, and I think that the word actually gives us the explanation. They like excitement. They tune into excitement. So this is one important motive. It's the emotional juice. But there's a second thing also. I think that the media have been thrown off balance by the need to be oppositional to Trump. And it's not that partisanship uh, drove them to be oppositional. It's not that they were a political party. It's that they had at least some remote attachment to fidelity to truth. 
But it's awkward for them to be oppositional. They're uneasy about it. And therefore, they look for opportunities to declare that he is a normal president after all. He is, quote unquote, to use the word uh, appallingly used by Fareed Zakaria, presidential. He became president. Uh, I think those are the two considerations. It's not that they're hawkish as such. It's not that they have a considered preference for military action. It's that they are galvanized by their testosterone, if you'll forgive me. Right. I mean, as you say, I think it is interesting. There is this old adage of wars make states and states make wars. And sort of the prevailing narrative in the Trump administration is that he has a discombobulated government. He just has not been able to form the government. So this, you know, to your point, does give people a very easy opportunity to say, hey, Trump is taking charge and he's delivering some sort of discernible kinetic action that we can actually evaluate. Right. They want the the simple storyline. And they're uneasy when the state is reeling which it is, when the president is an ignorant liar, which he is. So, you know, you get these little micro scandals in the case of Sean Spicer, or you get these moments of enthusiasm. Thank God we can let down our guard and we can get with the program again. And this is what we recognize as a president. It's, it's astoundingly primitive, but astoundingly predictable. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've been, you know, very curious to follow is just the lack of communication from the Trump administration. I mean, we have written time and time again at CGR about how, A, Trump doesn't tell the truth. B, he changes his mind on a moment's notice. C, his communication shop cannot keep to a straight message. So you have all three of those things that we sort of dissected and analyzed in so many different directions during the campaign. They became a little bit more serious once he became president. And now, you know, once his finger's on the button to launch dozens of Tomahawk missiles, now we know that's really serious. And Almost a week after the Trump administration made its decision, we still don't have any clear answer for exactly why he decided to launch 59 Tomahawk missiles and kill a half dozen guys in Syria. It's never going to be possible to answer the why question with Trump because he is impulsive, uncontrollably impulsive, and is not guided by any principle, by any scruple, by any idea. So this is also an ambition to be given up. You're not going to find rhyme or reason. This is a gravely impaired man, very weak, which is why he's always harping on strength. And he's weak, weak enough to be influenced by the latest person he's talked to, the latest meme somebody's passed to him. There is nobody there. This is the terrifying truth that will not be faced. So people are asking the wrong question. What does he really mean? He doesn't really mean anything. His entire biography is driven by a seat-of-the-pants belief that if he simply plunges ahead, he will be the victor. He will be able to beat the opposition into submission. He will be able to round up the deal. He will be able to intimidate uh, the other party. This is his lifelong MO. For CJR, you had this one interesting line sort of with regard to the serious strikes in particular. You wrote, quote, we do not fathom the whole appalling truth of the war. And you said that with regard to Syria, but also generally with Mm -hmm. armed conflicts. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, War is carnage. War is bloodshed. War is uh, deprivation. War is loss. War is 
irretrievable destruction. And yet, over and over again, and I've been, uh, you know, I've been through a bunch of wars in my life, uh, viewed through television. The media are clustered around the campfire. They want to be warmed by the spectacle. I'm overdoing it here. There have been wonderful exceptions, especially during the Vietnam War. But the excitement about shock and awe when George Bush bombed Iraq, Charlie Gibson's effusion about the captivating night goggle visions, which I remember hmm. him deploying on Jessica Lynch, the, uh, the glee the the arousal, the captivation, their captivation. These are all the predictable manifestations of um, of a failure of independent thought. These journalists are not chosen for their knowledge of history, their knowledge of so. For example, if they were chosen by the knowledge of history, they would understand that wars generate a rally around the flag effect, predictably, reliably. Insofar as they simply pick up the flag and rally, they are just going by a a script written in the White House. They're They're not independent. They can get some designers to draw cartoons, to draw graphics that look like missiles, and then suddenly they're back in grade school playing video games. I mean, it's really uh, egregious that people can be so ignorant. These are not serious people who are delivering the news in general. There are exceptions. But in general, they are, uh, I think it's fair to say, ill-schooled and uh, fairly um, primitive people. They're not reporters. Right. And as you bring up, your, you mentioned specifically in your piece, Brian Williams, for example, who has his own track record about lying and em- embellishing his part in the war uh, from the reporter side of things. But I just wanted to say, me, I'm a 25-year-old guy. One of my first memories, clear memories of the media was the period between September 11th and the Iraq war, just sort of the, the crescendoing drumbeat over that time period. Uh, and since then, we've been in this state of either total war, whether it's in Iraq and Afghanistan, or half intervention by way of drone strike and special operations war in other places of the world. State of emergency. State of emergency since then. And now, I mean, it, it just feels as if there's been no broad lessons learned over that time period. I mean, part of that could be just because the same cast of characters are leading all these news organizations in many cases. The Brian Williams of the worlds were around in 2003. One would think that we would know better by now. Well, television not great at learning. I mean, for how many years I've been hearing, you know, even within my experience, longer than you've been alive, I've been hearing network producers and writers saying, you know, we really botched the way we covered the last election. We've got to do something different. Oh, and every year it's the horse race. Every year it's the innuendo. Every year it's the the gaffe. It's the uh, the pseudo scandal. The product is the attention of viewers. As long as attention attention of viewers is uh, reliably uh, brought forth, then they've succeeded. Then they're rated as successes. So why should they change what they're doing? They have no internal incentive. Mm -hmm. They have no conviction or commitment to the significance of what they're doing. You know, they are hired hands acting like hired hands. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that there wa- were some positive instances of TV news in particular with war coverage during the Vietnam War. I think yes. internal media lore that focuses on Cronkite going to Vietnam. Can you expand a little bit on that, on the role yeah, TV that, play? Cronkite's going to Vietnam was actually relatively late in the game. There were reporters on the ground who were 
more or less credulous about the official claims about the war until they got to the country and they traveled around with American troops, and it should be said, on military helicopters. And uh, they realized through their own senses, through their own reporting, that the version of the war that was being presented to them at the daily briefing by the military was false. So whether they thought the war was initially a good idea or not, they were introduced to the, the government's powers of deception. And this was really startling because if they'd been old enough to uh, see either World War II or Korea, they had found not only was, were the rights and wrongs of the war so stark, uh, at least in World War II, they were not aware that the government was lying to them. For the most part, I suppose, the government wasn't lying to them. It was fudging because all carnage reporting is fudge. You know, we never see the bodies blown sure. apart. And, and then they were, so they were shocked into a new understanding of the world by the fact that the government wasn't behaving as they had expected it to behave. The government wasn't wasn't that, you know, salute the flag and show up force that uh, that they had assumed was in charge. So th there were you know, quite a number of people, you know, in print, David Halberstam, Malcolm Brown, Neil Sheehan, New York Times, AP, uh, on television, uh, Morley Safer, John Lawrence, and others. It's CBS was was outstanding at that. Starting in '65, when Morley Safer showed a Marine setting fire to a Vietnamese hut with a cigarette lighter, and the Johnson White House went nuts in response. There were there were a number of real go get 'em reporters who were not ideologues, but they were equipped, they had some kind of footing. They had intellectual and moral standing. Mm -hmm. So they they did good reporting. And so Cronkite made his famous move out of his uh, anchor's chair uh, during the Tet Offensive, or right afterward in February 1968. War had already been intensely going for two and a half years. And yes, that was important, but not because of his reporting. It was important that just symbolically, the image, yeah. Mister, you know, Mister Authentic gets out of his chair, and you know, it's not a kind of practice you can afford to overdo. The fact that he did it once turned out to be important. So, one of the things I've been really interested in following over the last year in politics is sort of the feedback loop between digital media, but mostly social media and cable news. How in many cases, what Trump tweets or what other people tweet can really drive a news cycle on cable news. Do you think that changes the dynamic at all with regard to conflict reporting and foreign policy morass we find ourselves at the edge of? I'm not sure it changes the reporting. It certainly accelerates tendencies that are already at work. One way it might, I offer this as a hypothesis because the research hasn't been done to my knowledge, it may be that because the producers and the, the, the news directors and the proprietors are paying such close attention to the spiking of traffic, that news that makes the eyeballs attend, news that uh, draws clicks, is more desired. Uh, the New York Times is now putting the most email list on page three of the newspaper. Right. So you know the New York they've been do paying attention at the Times to this for you know for at least a couple of years now. So insofar as the the passions of the moment, the titillations of the moment are, as you say, looped into this feedback loop. This uh, d is not conducive to long term thinking. 
Right. And uh, it works both ways, too, I think, because, I mean, me, a person who's very, very worried about any action we're taking in Syria, I've been glued to various media sources over the last week or so. So either, you know, if you're hawkish or if you're more dovish like myself, these situations really do jack up your interest, either out of fear or out of excitement. Yeah. You know, we're mortal creatures and we're, I think, drawn to the adventures of life and death. I mean, all all known human literatures are redolent with stories of life and death. And even when the, the war imagery is sanitized, I think sort of in the back of our minds is sort of the understanding. The stakes here are real. And uh, so, the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Todd Gitlin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure. That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. Go to CJR.org and become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review. Please rate, comment, and share our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow The Kicker on Twitter, at KickerCJR, and also email us any suggestions for future conversation topics or guests at thekicker at CJR.org. Thanks again for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week.